This is the Wiser Than Yesterday podcast. Your hosts, Sam Harris and Nicholas Farik, digest the most interesting, informative and topical books, giving you their biggest insights. We expose different perspectives and tools to look at the world to make you wiser than yesterday. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Wiser Than Yesterday podcast. Um, my name is Nico. I'm joined by my co-host Sam, and today we're discussing a big book, literally but also figuratively, called um, "Anti-Fragile," written by Nassim Nicholas Taleb. How are you doing, Sam? Doing great. It's a <laughs> it was a long book. It definitely took us two weeks as opposed to the one week normal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, more like five books. Well, it's seven seven books. God, I've already forgotten. Yeah, mm-hmm. seven books, but he sort of summarized them into one big book, which was lovely because it makes it cheaper, but it's also <laughs> very long and hard to summarize in 40 minutes on a podcast, but yeah, see what we, we can could do. probably make a, a whole series, a whole series on this book, but we'll try and, and keep it short and get to the most important points. All right. So uh, let's start with a, with the general summary. So Nassim Taleb outlined uh, a problem in his previous book called the black swan that our world is dominated by black swans, by events that have a major impact, but that are um, not predictable beforehand. And in Anti-Fragile, he offers a solution, a definitive solution, and how to gain from disorder and chaos while being protected from fragilities and adverse effects. And what Taleb calls Anti-Fragile is actually a step further from robust because it benefits from big shocks, it benefits from uncertainty, and it benefits from stressors. Just like, for example, human bones get stronger when they're subjected to stress, up to a point. The antifragile needs disorder in order to survive and flourish. Let's talk about antifragility and, and what it means. And so antifragility brings us to the central triad. And it defines three types of exposure, which is first fragile, then robust, and then there's antifragile. And so fragile is, is an exposure that when there's more risk and more uncertainty, it will become harmed. And it's, it's very fragile to these kind, types of environments. Uh, a robust exposure or a robust entity is something that if there's uncertainty or not, if there's big or major events or not, it, it wouldn't impact a, a robust entity. And finally, there's then the anti-fragile or anti-fragile, and they actually positively benefit from uncertainty and risk and big shocks. And one of the favorite examples he gives for, for this triad is from the Greek mythology. So first there's the, the sword of Damocles or Damocles. Uh, Damocles was a, a Greek and he w- while he was eating, there was a, a sword dangling above his head and it was tied to the, to the ceiling by, by, by a hair of a, of a horse's tail or something. Anyway, and so whatever shock would happen, you know, would make the hair, it's very thin, so it would break and the, the sword would fall in his head. And so Damocles is extremely fragile to any uncertainty or, or shocks or, or, or risks. And then his example for the robust was a phoenix. So the phoenix, whenever a phoenix dies, it gets, it turns into an egg and gets reborn again a bit later. And so it doesn't matter if it dies, it doesn't become stronger when it dies, but it also doesn't suffer from these, these big shocks and big events. And then finally, um, last example is um, the anti-fragile. Anti-fragile is the hydra. And so the hydra is a monster in the sea, some kind of snake with multiple heads. And whenever you cut off a head, it actually grows two new heads. heads. 
And so the Hydra actively benefits from shocks. And so it's the more it gets its heads cut, cut off, the bigger it becomes. Yeah, yeah. He makes the point that there is no word currently to, you, to describe anti-fragile. It is its own word. And people try to say it means like resilient or robust, but it doesn't. It definitely means getting stronger from problems rather than just being able to deal with them. And people kind of keep on saying like, oh, we need to make our like economy resilient and things. And he's like, no, we should make it anti-fragile. And that's a different thing. So it's important to outline that at the start, which is good that we've done that. <laughs> Go us. <laughs> and, and some of the most relevant examples are, for example, a porcelain cup. You know, a porcelain cup, it's, it's, it's extremely fragile. So w- whenever you drop it from more than, let's say, 30 centimeters, it's going to break. Mm. while something that's anti-fragile, a material that's anti-fragile is a human bone, for example, where our human bones up to a point, if you put it under, tre- under tension or under pressure, it becomes stronger. So these are some of the examples that he gives. And for me, it was a profound insight I got, you know, about the human body where in our modern times, what we've been doing is we're, we've been avoiding stress on our body. And, and there's stress, you can put stress in, in a lot of different ways. One, there's, there's physical stress where you move or you run or you lift heavy stuff. And so today you can live your life without ever having to go out of breath or exert any physical exercise, you know, or any, any, any pressure on your body. Uh, because everything is just made so easy. If you, want to, if you want to get somewhere, you take a car. If you want to lift somewhere, uh, lift something, you, you use a machine, etc. And so there's the physical stressors that are taken away, but also nutritional stressors. So one of the things that he keeps talking about is fasting. Whereas humans, we now live in a, in a, in a situation where we eat three times a day. You know, we need breakfast, uh, lunch and dinner uh, and snacks in between. And that's how everyone lives almost uh, 100% of their lives. And he says that our, the human body hasn't evolved or eating three times a day. So we've, we, when we were hunter-gatherers, we ate maybe, like we went through long fasts quite a lot of the time. And that is actually what made our body stronger and more efficient. Yeah, he also talks about different types of food fasting. So as well as just not eating certain times, you maybe wouldn't get all your protein, carbohydrate vegetable sort of nutritional balance all at the same time so we shouldn't necessarily have like a perfect balance plate the whole thing we should have maybe eat a protein focused day and like a carb focused day and he talks about like some fasts aren't just about not eating like some of the religious fasts that have worked for thousands of years where people just avoid having sugar for a while or you're not allowed to eat meats and like dairy for like a whole month kind of thing and he sort of says like these things are useful to put your body through and actually really help Mm -hmm. which i thought was Mm -hmm something you kind of maybe don't think about you don't really expect to go okay i'm only going to eat fruit for two days and then i'm just going to eat like a steak for a day it's Mm -hmm. actually because of the because of the book i did my first 24 hour fast yesterday really cool so when you say 24 hours so did you like you ate dinner Mm -hmm. and then you didn't eat until dinner the next day so it's exactly 24 yeah exactly Yeah. yeah yeah cool i didn't do a full day without eating yeah so you kind of had like the hour crossover so if you finish eating at yeah. eight and then you start eating at seven yeah. kind of thing yeah yeah it's good to do like the whole like dinner and then like the whole of a day just don't eat and go to bed and then wake up the next day mm-hmm. that's quite that's fun next on the list yeah yeah it is, it's harder <laughs> i did the five day not eating thing that that sucked <laughs> yeah. the first four days were brilliant <laughs> by the end i was a mess <laughs> and oh, okay. anemic but that mm-hmm. was also because i was slightly anemic beforehand i just didn't mm-hmm. realize but mm-hmm. I think it's okay. I, I would definitely do it again, but I'd probably have like a few supplements or something to, to make it not quite so bad. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
but no, it was good and recommend it. Yeah. Yeah. So our body is anti-fragile. And so he also discusses jobs that are fragile or anti-fragile. So different types of jobs. And so one of the example he gi- examples he gives is he was on, at a conference with an fragilista economist that he was going to debate. And he was talking to the producer of his book and he was telling them, hypothetically speaking, uh, let's do a thought experiment. What if I would, instead of debating the fragilista that I profoundly disagree with on a, on a lot of conceptual levels, what if I go into a public fight with him? Hmm. What if I punch him in the face? And, and, and the guy was, well, I would say first, first impression, it's probably not a good thing, but it's, it's not going to hurt your book sales. And so that was when he realized that being an author, being, being a public person is usually an anti-fragile position where if you get in the news negative or positively, this will benefit you. Like he would sell more books if, if he would be in the news for fighting with someone he fully disagrees with. Yeah. Um, up to a point. As in, okay. Yeah. Um, up to, yeah. Some famous musicians who have turned out been having sex with babies. People stop buying their records. Well, but then, you know, Michael Jackson, people still like those ones, but there's certainly a few artists in the UK that have been crowned doing these things and like, you can't listen to their records anymore. <laughs> But yes, but Trump has very well demonstrated that you can be a complete asshole and people will sort of you know, buy your books and listen to you a lot more. <laughs> yeah, and then he, he makes the example of a, a middle, like a bank middle level manager who, you know, who went to a nice university as, a, as an MBA perhaps. But if he would get into a fight, his, he would lose his job and his reputation would be gone. And so the chance of him finding a new job in a, in a similar like type of position would be very small. And so the, the middle, the bank middle manager is, is very fragile to these, these types of events while the author is anti-fragile and someone in a blue collar job, or for example, someone who's driving a cab, for example, um, would be robust to these kinds of types of events. If he would get into a fight, it would not impact his, his job usually as long as he doesn't get mm. arrested and stuff. Yeah. I was going to say, but then if you're an entrepreneur though, probably it does affect you mm-hmm. purely because bad press, maybe people that like to invest in you and stuff. And like Travis, founder of Uber, you know, got like kicked out for being a bit of a douche, which certainly mm-hmm. wasn't as bad as some things authors have done. Yeah, you're right. Mm. This, this, this actually, when you talk about entrepreneurs, um, I had a reflection that you can, if you start a business, there's a few roads you can take in, in, in terms of uh, how fast you want to grow. Mm. Um, and one of the usual ones is to go for venture capital and get a VC on board. But it's definitely not necessary to do that. Mm. If you don't want to grow exponentially or you don't need so much cash to, to have a good business, you know, a self-funded entrepreneur who didn't take any external capital will have, an, like, if, if he expected to have, you know, 5 million in, in yearly revenue, but it turns out he only has 100,000 in yearly revenue, it's, it's probably not going to be a, a massive impact. Like he can still continue the business, especially yeah. if he if he can still pay all of his employees and all of his uh, all, the, all all the people in, involved in the company. However, if you are VC backed and you um, make only five uh, percent of what you expected to, then you're in trouble, and the business is probably going to be going bust pretty fast. Mm-hmm. So there, you know, being VC backed uh, probably makes you more fragile than uh, than doing it on your own. Yeah. No, I don't know if it limits some of your potential to grow faster when things go wrong. So it depends on like the specifics, really. Mm-hmm. And if you have a lot of money in the bank and like stuff goes wrong for like some of your competitors, you can suddenly like make a huge, it can become like a big advantage. 
when things go wrong or affect the market, it just dies for a year. If you've got money in the bank, you can kind of still roll with it. So like I spoke with like the manager of textiles yesterday and like they did their huge round last year. So they've got like five years worth of funding to make on companies. So they haven't had to like worry about anything this year. Whereas like a lot of investors are like worried about making any investments right now because like the market's confusing. But textiles are like, well, yeah, this is a great opportunity. Like some companies are really going to change the game over the next few years as everything's sort of been changed. So they, they're going to make probably a lot more money from this event because they have been backed by VCs already. So yes, it's a... Depends on which way you look at it on different circumstances, but there's certainly ways where you can be more fragile and more anti-fragile from these things. And yeah, by the same way, I know some companies that have taken easy funding, but now they're, they're kind of fucked right now because they can't raise more money, but they are stuck spending too much money because they've gone up to their thing. Even though they have like a year's worth of money left, they still probably aren't going to do well from this recession. Whereas before, if they just had never grown as fast, they wouldn't have their expenditure and they could be dealing with this problem a lot better it's all very circumstantial sometimes mm -hmm. yeah i agree and i think talking about the recession it brings me to the, to my next point that volatility and randomness keep the system in balance and uh, it's here he uses the example of a forest fire where in a forest if you know the, the occasional small forest fire fire will you know keep all the the dead wood gone however if you try and forcibly avoid any small forest fires at some point, there will be so much dead wood that it will, you know, with one small start of a fire, it will burn down the whole forest. And I think this is a nice parallel to what's happening today in the markets, where in the past 10 years, since the, the, the Great uh, Recession, governments have done everything to keep the economy in an upward trajectory. So they've been bailing out the bigger companies. They've been uh, pumping money. They've been quantitative easing, you know, reducing interest rates, et cetera. And so my impression of the current situation is as follows. I think that there's a lot of toxicity in the markets, a lot of bad companies with bad management, bad decision-making that have been kept afloat by bailouts and by governments. And this has made that the economy extremely fragile. So what I expect, we're still at the start of the, the whole Corona recession. And I think it's going to get way, way worse just because it, it's been going steadily upwards too long yeah definitely and yeah it's going to be like a longer time period and if it also stops like right now and kind of starts going back together it should be all right but long term of three months worth of lock-ins and things is really gonna knock on like huge knock-on effects on so many different companies that probably shouldn't be there a lot of them which is kind of sort of a good thing but kind of confusing and <laughs> many ethical and moral debates to go into there but definitely, I think allowing more sort of small fires to burn in our economy and less sort of propping up from governments to like make sure we make money right now would have made us more resilient. We had better systems and structures in place. It's clear that Taleb favors the small over the large mm. because he also, he also says that nature favors the small over the large. And so what's happened is that a lot of companies, you know, grow together, became very big corporations and became too big to fail. And so what these super large corporations have been doing in the past years was they've been using the very cheap interest rates and the easy money to buy back shares, which propped up their own share price, which made their investors richer and richer. But the problem is that they invested so much money in, in doing that, that if, I, if they would have kept the money, they wouldn't be in trouble at, at all anymore today. To give an example, Delta Airlines, I don't know its valuation by heart, but it has been buying back shares for $12 billion over the past four years or five years. And they could have used that money today, you know, to keep 
themselves afloat because they already applied for a bailout and they have a lot of short-term liabilities that they have to pay, pay off. So they're, they're in trouble. And so, yeah, if they had had better management, if they were a bit more resilient or had built themselves to be a little bit more anti-fragile, they wouldn't be in this situation right now because things will go wrong at some point, right? Mm. And I think that's also the philosophy of Warren Buffett. Warren Buffett invests in companies that are so wonderful and so simple that even an idiot could run them because he, he says that at, at some point, an idiot will run them. Mm. Um, and so I think this, this is Warren Buffett is a good friend uh, of Bill Gates. And so Bill Gates follows this strategy as well. All of the companies that he invests in all benefit from very war- large network effects. And so I've, I've heard quite a lot of, of billionaires discussing the way they invest. And they say that bi- network effects are, are, are very, very important if you want to invest in a company that will have long-term success. Mm. Uh, and so network effects, perhaps, Sam, you can give a, a short explanation on that. Yeah, so network effects are where things get stronger, the bigger they are. So like Facebook, the more people that are on it, the more friends that people have. So the more reason you have to be on there. Although it maybe has become a bit too much in some ways because of it's kind of annoying when you sort of can't use it in the way that you used to because there's so many people on there. Whereas like railways, you kind of can't build a new railway company anymore because of it sort of it relies on all the networks that are there and the bigger it is it's sort of less likely anyone's going to make a new railway system so they're kind of a bit more of a better version of network effects although maybe you know elon musk comes along and makes like hyperloop and <laughs> your railway gets forgotten but it seems unlikely that railways are really going to get replaced so it's a good kind of thing to invest on if you have like a really good rail company Exactly. So I think uh, Bill Gates invested in railway companies, also in, I think, garbage disposal companies. Yeah. So that's that's the, the space he, he's investing in. So it's a very, mm. nothing tech related, but all, all very sustainable businesses that will not be damaged too much from whatever's going to happen in the future. Yeah. We'll always need to have garbage. Exactly. All right. So one, one other point that Taleb makes is that if a black swan event happens, we should not blame the predictors or the people that failed to predict the event, but rather we should blame the fragility of the system and fix it. And so to to give you an example of that, uh, Fukushima, um, so nuclear reactors used to be built to to be able to withstand the largest earthquake that happened until, well, since uh, 150 years ago. Mm. And so they were strong enough to, to withhold that kind of strength of an earthquake. However, what happened with Fukushima was there was an earthquake which was stronger than the last one that was ever measured. And so it, it was obvious that the, the nuclear reactor wasn't prepared for that. So the system wasn't ready. And so now all over the world, governments and operators of these power plants are realizing this and finally building their reactors to be way stronger than the last measured earthquake or the, the strongest earthquake that has ever measured. Because at some point, it's only a matter of time until mm. a, a even bigger earthquake comes along. Yeah, it's kind of a silly thing to be expecting because of you know, humans have been around for many thousands of years. It's, it's not expected that like it's going to happen next year, but it's sort of guaranteed that something will happen that is bigger than what you've experienced before, surely, in terms of earthquakes and things like that. But mm-hmm. I don't know. So, what do you mean by blame the predictors? So, in that relation, as in you just yeah. I don't see quite how that directly relates to the example of like, you don't blame the predictors, but the fragility of the system. So no one predicted an earthquake to be um, stronger than the, the, the strongest earthquake that had happened in the past. But you shouldn't blame the people that made the prediction. 
you should just blame the system that it relied on the predictions for its solidity or robustness. And so, I mean, if, if you're building a nuclear reactor, you shouldn't rely on, on people making predictions about the, the magnitude of the worst thing that can happen. You should assume that it is going to be way worse than that and make sure that even if uh, something 10 times as bad happens as the worst thing that could happen, you're still strong enough to, to withhold that. Mm. But then that is, yeah, it's kind of very easy to say for everything, <laughs> but then <laughs> practicalities of doing it's harder. But yeah, maybe it sort of makes sense. Yeah, I guess it is. It's, I mean, it's very possible that a lot of technological advancements have been made by disregarding this theory of being anti-fragile. Mm. You know, I think that a lot of good things have happened from corporations being too big to fail, or maybe not a lot of, but some, you know, some advancements mm. have happened because of that. But I think what Taleb suggests is that on average, it's better um, to have s- small things that are resistant to these shocks because that's on the whole will drive forward innovation mm. way more than uh, than whatever's happening now. All right. In the next part of the book, Taleb tries to explain how to achieve anti-fragility by the method of the barbell. And so the method of the barbell, we've already quickly addressed this in uh, when we we're discussing in the black swan, but it's basically it's, it's three things. So first you limit your fragility and where you say, okay, survival become, comes before success. And so I think this is, if we look at stock market and investing, this is uh, where you just make sure that your downside is limited. And on top of limiting your fragility, you try to gain a very high exposure to potential positive black swan events. And so the way he does this is by investing the majority. So let's say 85% of his um, assets into something very, very uh, low on risk. So for example, a um, government, uh, like a treasury bond or something like that, or cash or gold or whatever. And then he invests the rest in some very, very high risk, high reward assets. For example, I think the way he made his money was through options. So he used a small percentage of his assets to purchase options, which had a very big exposure towards um, black swan events. And so he made a lot of money um, in the market crash of uh, 1987, for example, because he had had some options because he saw the fragility of the whole economic system. And he says that you should avoid having anything in between. So you go extremely aggressive, extremely safe, and nothing in between. And that's the barbell. Yeah, Mitch. It's the opposite of what most people do. <laughs> yeah, cash doesn't really grow. It's useless. And like extremely risky things are silly because of you just kind of lose your money. And you kind of go in what seems safe-ish and sort of gives you like an okay-ish return. And then things like recessions happen and it gets wiped out. Yes, exactly. And he gives an interesting example from nature um, where there's, in humans, but also in animals, there's this tendency, well, tendencies might be the wrong word, but it's, it's been noticed that uh, females marry accountants and cheat with, with rock stars. And so in this case, you know, in the example of a human woman, they marry an accountant because it's super safe and they expose themselves to the positive benefit of mating with a super dominant alpha male by cheating with a rock star. Uh, and so they have, you know, all their basic needs because uh, an accountant is super stable and will all be, always be able to provide for them. But they have the potential benefit of, of the, the good genes from the, from the rock star by cheating mm. with him. Found that a, a very interesting example. Yeah, <laughs> not at all sexist. We can talk about men with like safe jobs, but then go gambling. <laughs> but yes, certainly uh, not all females do this, by the way. <laughs> Just a few, apparently. 
Yeah. And then Taleb discusses the king of anti-fragility, which is optionality. And so optionality or options allow you to benefit from positive side of, of uncertainty without being affected by the negative side. And so he talks about different options. So the, the basic option and the easiest way of understanding it is, is options in the market uh, where you can purchase a call option um, or a put option. And if the market makes very, very big moves, there's a very big potential for you to make a lot of money on the, that move. Another example he makes is renting an apartment, where if you're renting an apartment and the price of real estate collapses, you have the option of moving to a new apartment and paying way lower rent. However, if, if the apartment or the real estate in the neighborhood goes up extremely, you are able to, well, you usually have a contract for a few years. And so you still benefit from the old, relatively low rent. And so that's why renting an apartment actually offers you the optionality with respect to the, the real estate prices in your neighborhood. Mm. Yeah, I would like to know about making call and put options because of I don't know where and how you do this and it would be quite interesting to go into these things. Yeah, I mean, I think he says that options are, like the real options in the market are probably most expensive kinds of options because um, they've been studied the most and so they are priced relatively accurately. But in life there's way more options than we realize. And so what he says is that it's important to expose ourselves or to gather as much of these types of options as we can and, and be able to identify these types of options. And so renting an apartment is one example, but there are many, many more examples in the world that we just that we don't realize that are options and that allow us to benefit from positive black swans while also allow us to not be affected by negative ones. Yeah, in the same way that, you know, gaining more skills of you're not necessarily sure what's useful, but if you have learned to design, you have learned to kind of code and stuff, and like things will go tits up, you suddenly have possible options that you can go and do with your job or you know more about mm -hmm. the world mm -hmm. and things. And like reading lots of mm -hmm. books, it like provides you more options of ways to think and understand things. So yeah, mm -hmm. just doing lots of stuff <laughs> helps give you options. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And so one of the points he makes is that being anti-fragile is more important than uh, being intelligent. So intelligent allows you to make accurate predictions about the future. But he says that if you're able to spot anti-fragile opportunities, it doesn't matter if you make accurate predictions about the future, you will benefit um, even if you're wrong. And so that's where he says that these types of things are, are, are more important to success or more, uh, more relevant in daily life than, than pure intelligence and being able to make accurate or semi-accurate predictions. Yeah, so this is just a bit abstract in some ways of like, how do you be less intelligent, but more anti-fragile kind of thing? Exactly. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, part of intelligence is also spotting options and spotting mm, yeah. potential so anti-fragility, right? Really being less intelligent or because he's saying that like, <laughs> technically you are being more intelligent if you're doing that. So mm -hmm. yeah, that's true. confusing wording. But it's, it's okay to be, it's okay to not have an idea about potential. Yeah. You don't need to necessarily study everything of what's going on perhaps to make yourself more anti-fragile in general in terms of back to like the barbell strategies and things. Mm. It's okay to be stupid if, if, if your life's full of optionality and you're, you're anti-fragile. Yeah, yeah. And he talks um, a bit about like theories at one point about people don't need to know necessarily why things are. So he talks about the green wood um, investor, mm -hmm. who like a guy that was just investing in green wood, who didn't know that it meant it was like fresh cut wood. And he just thought it was wood that had been painted green, but he was better at like playing that market than people that had like studied exactly what it was and how it works and all these things. 
and even though he didn't even know what it was kind of thing he just sort of mm-hmm. knew the basis of like when it was going up and when it was down and he, he talks about other theories like a man who wanted to lose weight but he just ignored the low carb diet because of he didn't understand it until someone explained like how insulin works and that it would like have an effect on him if he didn't have so many carbs and so he did it and he lost lots of weight and he would you know he tell everyone how good this diet was even though for years people who weren't eating carbs were losing weight but he ignored it until he like knew the science and that he don't need to know exactly why things are if you can just see the general trend of what's going on and be less specific so if you can look at like five general trends in the same amount of time that it takes you to look at one thing very specifically and like become really intelligent in that area it may it's much wiser to just have five general trends going on because of you just know a lot more of just what you need to know mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's the narrative fallacy, right? Mm. We as humans are, as he calls it, suckers for sophistication, yeah. um, and so we are way more ready to believe something if if there's like a plausible story next to it. Definitely. Um, and so there he he talks about the um, Soviet Harvard illusion, mm. or teaching birds how to fly. And so basically, we as humans, as he said, we like sof- uh, sophisticated things. And so one of the examples he had, and it's true in my life that. If whenever we see an advertisement for something, we tend to be critical and we, we're not really disappointing if in reality, the product that we buy is not the same as was presented in the advertisement. Mm. Ironically enough, we do not do the same with scientific research, although there's not that much fundamental differences between advertisements and scientific research because scientific research also um, has the option of showing only the data that proves the, whatever they were trying to prove, right? And so we always take scientific data for granted immediately, but we, are, we don't do the same for ads, which is kind of ironic. And anyway, and so that's, that brings us to the, the, the Soviet Harvard illusion or teaching birds how to fly. It's, it's the illusion where practitioners do and uh, thinkers write about it. And so what happens is that traders trade and traders form techniques and products that prove to be successful um, and that they found to be successful in their trading. And so scientists, they find formulas about these, you know, these products and techniques that traders have been using, and they claim that they've invented those products. And, and so they claim that traders use the products that they've developed as scientists. And so new traders, they believe the academics, and they start using these techniques and products without fundamentally understanding them. And that results in blow-ups from uh, theory-induced fragility. And so that's the tendency of people to, when they see something, they uh, build a narrative behind it. And then uh, that narrative induces fragility into the system because it's actually not correct. Yeah, definitely. And I think that's, that's he also talks about, you know, uh, muscle growth, where a few years ago, people believed that lifting heavy weights caused micro tearing in your muscles, which would result in bigger muscles, which would result in you becoming stronger. And I think today the dominating theory is that there's like hormonal stuff that takes place, which makes you become stronger whenever you lift heavy weights. And he predicts that in a few years, there's going to be another theory. But in the end, the theory doesn't really matter. It's the result that matters. And so you just, if you lift weights and you get stronger, that's everything you need to know. Mm. You don't really really need to know the, the theory. Yeah, yeah. It. Whereas if you follow the specific you might invest in a device that tears your muscles for you or like now you might invest in like hormones whereas Mm -hmm. what you should be doing is just lifting weights (laughs) that's the important thing exactly that's that's a perfect example and so one of the examples he has is also uh, with uh, scientific research and inventions Um, and so he says that we think that scientific research lies behind a lot of the very big inventions that were made in the past years but he says that it's actually absolutely not the case and so one of the examples is the jet engine 
the jet engine people were looking for something completely different when they suddenly found something that eventually led to the development of a jet engine which I found very interesting. And he says that many, many inventions actually follow this path where it's people that are tinkering with stuff and trying to try uh, trying out new stuff and, and new technologies and combining things that have never been combined before. Mm. And that that resulted in, in some of the craziest inventions of our times. And it's almost never the case where people think about something very long and then that suddenly becomes something new and very impactful. Yeah, yeah. He says the same thing with like trying to be things. And if you're trying to be the next Einstein, if you're just sort of riffing on Einstein's theories, you might like slightly increase them a bit further, but you're not going to do something radically different and sort of world changing. You kind of need to go into just uncharted territory and just sort of put old crazy things together and you'll start like having really new ideas. Mm -hmm. And so what he suggests following this theory is that governments do not invest so much in scientific research, but more into uh, thinkery non-theological thinkery. And I think this follows uh, a bit the theory of venture capital firms. When they invest into a company, they don't invest in the, in the, in the theory or the idea. They invest in the person because the person or the team that's going to execute the idea will be the one doing the tinkering, will be the one doing the rapid experimentation. And that has always proven to be the best uh, path for success over the long term. Yeah, that's true. Well, I don't know. As a scientist, I kind of don't like being told that science is bad. <laughs> definitely some things that come i think there should be more collaboration between science and business and more like organized tinkering which i guess is perhaps Mm -hmm. what he's getting at but yeah just Mm -hmm. knowledge for knowledge's sake is a bit pointless it's definitely more Mm -hmm. like messing around with things and seeing how they can work and commercialize and these sort of stuff it's been very confronting discussing my findings of this book with my girlfriend who is currently finishing up her phd in in development economics yeah um, because Taleb is specifically harsh <laughs> for economists. And so I've told her, like, if she, if she would want to pursue a career in academia, I told her that she ha- has to read this book beforehand. Yeah. Um, because <laughs> the thing is that I'm, I'm trying to bring up some of the points that Taleb makes, but I found it hard to convince her or to bring, uh, drive uh, through what, one yeah, of the points or, like or the, some um, of the points that he makes. Elephant in the brain, you kind of need people to have read it, really. <laughs> just trying to discuss yeah. these things with people is just a bit confronting. And I guess that's why it's fallen out with so many people. He's kind of like, okay, I just kind of write all these thoughts down so you can understand them. Just like mm-hmm. one thing at a time. Yeah, I mean, this is especially a book where you're like, if I want to explain this theory to someone, I mean, it's almost it's it's going to take so long, or there's so many so many side things that you need to to build upon to yeah, to get yeah. to the eventual, Definitely. you know, the, the <laughs> concept and 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 the idea. So yeah. I'm, I'm very glad that that you also read the book so I can discuss the, the mm. profound findings. Yeah, yeah, it doesn't really work else and. I mean, by the end, like the final chapter, he's literally just talking in a different language. He, he, he makes so many different sort of concepts like Empedocles tile and then like talks about skin in the gain or like the Lindy effect, convexity, via negativa. These are all like theories that he expands on that we haven't even explained mm-hmm. all of them here. But by like the final mm-hmm. chapter, he's literally, his words are just the via negativa of Neomania from the Fragilistas. And you're like, these are all just sort of a different <laughs> language. And like, you have to have read the entire book for any of this to make sense. Yeah. And um, exactly, yeah, to tie it all together, you sort of just need to read the whole thing. Mm-hmm. But absolutely, I think you're doing a great job, and <laughs> I'm vaguely helping, so <laughs> no, no. don't worry. <laughs> all right, and then he talks about, I think, his, his philosopher's stone or the, the, golden, the golden rule of benefiting from fragility or, anti, or being anti fragile. And so, the philosopher's stone is if you have favorable asymmetries, you will do well 
on the long term um, with uncertainty. And so basically it's exposing yourself to favorable asymmetries. And so to, to explain what favorable asymmetries are, it basically follows the positive convexity effect, which a convex graph is something that starts off slow and then as, as the x-axis goes further, it suddenly starts growing exponentially. So it's mm. like an exponential curve. And so I think, for example, if, if you ever studied the theory behind options, if you, for example, have um, bought a put option, the, the value of a put option when the stock price hasn't changed much is very low. But the higher that the stock price is different from the, the original stock price uh, or the execution price of the option, you know, the, the, the more you profit from it. And so if, if the more volatile the stock price, the, the more potential benefit you can have from the option. So, yeah, and so having um, one of those in that's the, Tesla is a great thing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So uh, options in Tesla, the, the problem with options is that they're already priced in by the market. So mm. uh, especially in Tesla, options are going to be extra, yeah, yeah. Um, extra costly. And that's why he says that that's there are fine. many ways to, to figure out options in, in, other, right. in other spaces. So for me par- personally, one of the ways I look at this is, is Bitcoin. Mm. So as I've said a few times on this podcast, I'm a big, a big fan of, of, of Bitcoin specifically, especially with what is happening today. So central banks almost all over the world have reduced interest rates to zero, have been printing trillions of, of dollars and euros and yen to keep their economies afloat, which I expect and Taleb also expects will lead to uh, hyperinflation at some point. And I think it's, it's a bit the same example as a traffic example, where if you have 100,000 cars in New York City, traffic is smooth. But if you have 110,000 cars in New York City, there's suddenly like traffic jams everywhere. And so it's like, you know, the, the drop that made the bucket uh, overflow, it's like one extra unit from a certain point has, you know, extremely negative effects. And I think that's, I predict that will happen in the next weeks, months or years to come where, you know, we've always had money printing by central banks and only now so will we see some, some extreme adverse effects from that. And that's why I'm personally quite invested into Bitcoin because I believe it's a, it's a good, good hedge against that. Mm, definitely. It's been, it's been interesting that it's sort of been going down, but it started to go up again like just this week, but let's see what happens with it in the long run. But mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, it's a funny one to watch compared to other things. And yeah, we mm-hmm. try and come up with theories for it exactly. And like on any given day, you don't really know. <laughs> so. Yeah, exactly. But then, yeah, I think yeah, this leads into the next where um, there's the perishable versus non-perishable. And so humans are perishable. And so if you have a young human and mm. an old human, the young human probably will live longer than, well, will, has more time to live still than the older human, mm. right? And that's the same with every type of perishable object. And then there's non-perishable things like ideas or technologies or books, for example. Mm. And there it's actually the inverse. The older the technology or the older the book, the longer it is, it is expected to survive still. And so some, some of the, I mean, you, you made the example um, before the podcast of, of, what was it, books? Yeah, books. So if you think of or? like, if you just read like the top thousand books from like a thousand years ago, they're still probably going to be pretty relevant in a few hundred years time. If you read like the top thousand books this year, most of them will not be relevant in a hundred years time kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And you sort of, yeah, books on stoicism are still going to be completely relevant in a thousand years. Whereas mm-hmm. specific book written right now, 
a lot of them just won't be even if it's sort of philosophy exactly. or like so like the books on ai written right now like most of them won't be correct in like <laughs> in five years time yeah, yeah yeah exactly it could be that yeah it's very like so, surface level knowledge of what's going on but it may not even be at all right yeah yeah and uh, it's clear that Taleb lives his life uh, and follows follows this this view on old versus new mm. uh, profoundly throughout, throughout everything that he does. So one of the things he said is that he he's a very big fan of the the ancients, mm. the the old Greeks, the old Greek philosophers, and many other very ancient writers and and thinkers, and he references them the whole the whole time in his book. And because their ideas have stood the test of time until now, he knows that, I mean, their ideas have a profound value mm. as opposed to some of the new inventions or ideas that came up in the, in the past 50 years. Yeah, same way he, um, he only drinks like things that have been around for thousands of years, like coffee and wine, and he doesn't drink any kind of sweeteners or these kind of things. It's, he sticks very much mm -hmm. to sort of old stuff where he doesn't drink like concentrated juice kind of stuff because it's like mm -hmm. an orange has all like the fiber and all the things whereas less like concentrated juice is just sort of garbage sugar and it's not really like one fruit a day compared to eating an actual fruit mm -hmm. stuff yeah he says that that nature is anti-fragile and it's not because we don't understand why nature does something that this means that it is bad and so he says that um, because nature is anti-fragile and fragile things tend to break over time uh, that's why he prefers the old over the new. So as you said, he only drinks liquids that have been that have existed for more than a thousand years. He also only eats fruits that had been harvested centuries ago in the areas that um, where he's from. Mm. So basically the Middle East. Yeah, but that's still really hard to be exact because the food innovation changes so fast, even on like the, mm -hmm. the crops that are being grown. Just to make a point that, yeah, the fruits that we have now are all completely warped to what they were like a few hundred years ago. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I had the, the impression that he was following the the, the paleo diet idea, mm. where you only eat stuff that humans also ate when they were hunter gatherers, yeah, yeah, as opposed to eating lots of lots of grains because we were only sedentary for a few thousand years. Yeah, have you had the follow your genes diet? So that you eat. So if your genes are from like African descent, you only eat what like they would have eaten so like a thousand years ago. Whereas if you are like someone from north europe you should only read what was naturally grown in your like country i haven't heard of it but it mm. makes a lot of sense yeah yeah it's, an, it's, a, it's a very easy theory to buy into there's plenty of reasons why it's probably just bollocks but yeah it's a very story easy story to believe like yeah that makes sense <laughs> so I, I don't really know either way it's mm -hmm. as in that there's theories from this book that say mm -hmm. both <laughs> you should do it and both that you shouldn't do it <laughs> So you're like, oh, we're believing a theory straight away. Mm -hmm. And the other one's like, oh, that's yeah, a great yeah. theory. So it's, and you're like, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. But, mm -hmm. you know, just evidence-based, just just test it. If it works, it works. If it doesn't work, it doesn't work. Don't look for the actual specifics. Exactly. Just try it out. Mm. That's what I, try to do, what I try to do with my diet. And yeah, it's stuff. really fun. Mm -hmm. Then, I mean, this leads into the part on, on neomania. Something you'd like to, to add on that? Yeah, so we naturally just want to have new things so you know you buy your phone but a year later you feel like your phone's shit and you want like the newest phone or like you have a car but then like a year later you see someone in a new car they've got like slightly different headlights and it's slightly better and you're like you'll lose mm -hmm. like a third of your money to buy that one to just feel like you're up and coming in the best stuff even though 99 percent of that car is still going to do the same job it's going to get you to a to b it's going to play nice music it's it really doesn't matter that much all these things and 
we just have this mild obsession with new stuff. We think that it's better when actually you just, again, you know, instead of looking at the specifics, you need to just think about like the broad context of what the thing does for you and what you need it for. And, you know, you don't need new stuff all the time. Like my laptop works okay, sort of five years old and occasionally gets a bit slow and it might need to just like wipe everything, but you don't need to buy a new laptop every two years and more like phones that you sort of have contracts to buy it every year or two years, you probably can wait a lot longer. It's not required to buy new stuff all the time, always. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think this leads us into the neomania almost in medicine. Mm, yeah. Um, which is something that he, he talks about quite a lot. So at the end of the book, uh, he talks about, you know, the the Via Negativa, as you call it. So the, the, the book or the part of the book is called Via Negativa, where he tries to, instead of adding stuff, it's usually better to take away stuff, ironically. Mm. And so, and there, then he talks uh, quite in depth about medicine and modern medicine. And he says that one of the worst things for your health you can do is have a personal doctor. Because mm. the tendency is in medicine is to to do things. I've noticed this myself. Whenever I go to the, the doctor, I usually get out of there with like a prescription for some kind of, I don't know, like pain uh, reliever or something that, you know, stops infections or, or stuff like that. And I found a story about uh, his nose. It's super interesting. So he, I don't, I don't know what the, the, the story behind it was, but he, he, he had hit his nose against something. And so his nose was very, very swollen. And so he had to go to the hospital. So he went to the hospital and he said, okay, there's nothing we can do, but we suggest you put some ice on it. And then he asked the doctor, but why would I put ice on it? And like the, and then the doctor said, yeah, but to reduce the swelling. And then he said, okay, but why would I, like, do you have evidence that reducing the swelling will help whatever's happening in my nose? And the doctor obviously didn't have an answer to that. And so did some research. And so it appears that your body makes your nose swell and like the, the swelling has a purpose. <laughs> and so the swelling is so that, you know, whatever happened to your nose, it will heal more quickly. And it's the same with inflammatory responses to infections, right? Why would you take something anti-inflammatory when in inflammation is your body's response to like a foreign infection and it's trying to solve that? Yeah. Um, and so it's, it's the tendency of doctors to, you know, they want to do something because not doing anything is usually frowned upon and it feels like you don't want to help. Mm. Um, and this then ties into what we discussed with the, um, the elephant in the brain where people want to be seen as, as helpful and as, yeah, yeah, as, yeah. Good, yeah. As, as good allies. Definitely, and you—it's very easy to um, sell what you did do rather than to sell what you didn't do. Like people don't want to buy what you didn't do off you. <laughs> but yeah, as in well, in terms of the body and like whatever the word is, inflammations and some things do go too much. Kind of like the the traffic example. If you add a thousand cars, it's usually not a problem. Like with swelling, if you add get a bit more swelling, it's good. But if you go too far with something, it can be really bad. So it depends on what it is you're doing. I'd still say that there's room for some scientists here as well as, <laughs> but a lot of the principles are correct. And certainly like my grandpa, as in he got put on so many different medications when really he should have just drunk less and eaten less shit. And like, you just need to take stuff away. It wasn't like <laughs> medicate, medicate, medicate. Mm -hmm. So definitely, yes, taking stuff away is often the better answer than adding more things in. Yeah, for sure. Taleb uses the barbell theory for medicine as well. And so he says that medicine should only intervene in extreme cases where mm. like someone has some, some cancer that will kill them in 99% of the cases. And that is something that you should take away. But for example, when a person has a slightly um, increased blood pressure, there's absolutely no reason to give them statins or, or whatever other medication that might re reduce blood pressure. My, my grandma, for example, she takes 
21 pills a day. And so she, 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 she started by taking one pill, which had side effects. And so she had to take other pills to reduce the side effects. And then those had side effects. And so right now she takes 21 pills each day. Yeah, yeah. These things are nuts as well, because a lot of those things haven't really been studied on the impact of all pills on other pills. Like they usually, exactly. what does the one pill do? Yeah, it's a really big thing in science to trying to actually work out what's actually going on mm-hmm. when you have like all of these things in your body. It's, um... mm-hmm. And so the major takeaway here for me is that I will absolutely try and avoid any, any type of, of, of medication if I, if I don't really, really need it. Yeah. So even antibiotics are... are... Oh yeah, certainly. Well, what was the saying? That if all medicine would be dumped into the ocean, it would be a bad thing for the fishes, but a good thing for humans. <laughs> Yeah, and I think one last story that he, he that I would like to add uh, it, that the lab tells is about they took like a, 200 kids, and they took them to doctors to see if they had if they needed their tonsils removed, mm. and so they went they took the 200 kids to to uh, 200 doctors, and um, the doctors decided that about like 60 or, or something of them needed to have their tonsils removed. And so the same researchers then took the remaining 140 kids, took them to other doctors and asked the same question. And again, they saw that one, a certain percentage of the kids were diagnosed and were told that they needed their tonsils removed. And so they kept doing this. And at the end, like everyone needed their tonsils removed while it's only, it's only the case in like 4% of, of the cases. Mm. So only 4% really, really needs their tonsils removed. And for the rest, there's actually not really a need and the potential harmful effects from the surgery yeah, yeah. Uh, are way larger than the uh, potential benefits from removing their tonsils. And so, yeah, that's, uh, these are very profound insights and it's, yeah, I'm going to think, think again, if, if, if a doctor suggests yeah, medication or something. talks about sort of, well, related to the skin in the games and you shouldn't ask a scientist the value of his research and mm-hmm. people like this or like an economist, the value of his job, because they're obviously going to sort of massively over explain it and think that it's much better. And uh, yeah, because people are prescribed to sort of think that what they're doing is useful and prescribe it because they see a great, well, they sort of have this natural feeling that is probably more useful than it actually is because mm-hmm. they kind of yep. put their life into it. <laughs> and it's the same as like mm-hmm. a surgeon is obviously going to want to think that there's more reasons for surgery than, than perhaps there are because of they sort of have seen the ways that it has benefited people, but they kind of don't always notice all the other problems and yeah, mm-hmm. they kind of want to do it more than they should. Mm-hmm. The, the, I think that brings us in, in the last part of the book, which talks about ethics and the ethics of fragility and anti-fragility. And so there, the main concept is skin in the game. And so we think uh, it's probably going to be best if we don't discuss it right now, because as we know, now Taleb has written another book, which is called Skin in the Game, which is going to go more in depth on that. So uh, that's going to be for the, the next episode where we discuss mm. discuss that book. Yeah, I guess this yeah. is already a very long episode. Is <laughs> it's currently yes. what we're expecting. Let's, uh, let's finish up with a, with a short rating of the book. Good. I, I'm starting to like his books more. I'm not sure if he's got like better as a writer over time slowly or if it's just sort of melting into his world a bit as we're getting deeper and deeper. Mm-hmm. It's another fourth book we've read by him. But yeah, I, I kind of preferred it to the other ones. So even though yeah. I did really like a lot of the ideas in the others, I sort of found reading it better. I, I still find the amount of like technical jargon by the end kind of hard to sort of keep up with. Is in you really couldn't just dip into the last chapter. It would make zero sense kind of thing. So as in, I kind of want to give it a nine in terms of the value of the ideas, but like the writing style isn't as 
brilliantly perfect as it could be. But I th- yeah, <laughs> depends on what you're going for here. Maybe I should say 8.5 if that's allowed. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'll allow it. Thanks, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for me, I must say I found it his best book by far until now. Mm. So I, I really, really, really enjoyed reading reading it. I also really enjoyed many of the points that were made. And yeah, I, but it's true. It's, it, it gets heavier and heavier. And, but it's, it's good that we've read the other books, you know, the, yeah, the preceding yeah, books. Yeah, definitely. The Fool by Randomness, Black Swan, a uh, bit of Progressive is less relevant, but um, the, the mm. two first ones are, are very much useful when, when reading this. Yeah. And so for me, actually, I've had a few of my friends and acquaintances ask me, what are the most influential books or the best books that you read that you think that everyone should read? And I think top of the list is still Why Buddhism is True. That's still one mm. of my okay. most important ones. And this is this book is should be like in the top 10 for sure. Yeah, yeah, I definitely okay. feel like I kind of want to go and reread it now that we've sort of discussed all these things a bit more in depth and like mm-hmm. I've made mm-hmm. notes behind each kind of piece of jargon because we keep mm-hmm. using them. But like it, the book would be better having spent a bit of time thinking about it and digesting it to then go back and be like, okay, I'm going to read this with a mindset of understanding everything straight away. <laughs> It'd be really mm-hmm. nice. Oh, I'm not sure if it will yeah. tie together a bit more in skin in the game. Mm-hmm. Or um, yeah, more concepts. Guess we'll see. But yeah, I think this yeah. is one. It's really one of the top ones. But I don't know if you should recommend it without reading the others. I feel like mm-hmm. I don't know because I haven't read it without reading the others first. That it sort of makes sense of the others without needing them so much because he he just touches on lots of concepts of fall by randomness and black swan, and he sort of explains them. So you could maybe get away with just reading this one. If if you were to only read one, this would be the best one to read and understand but i don't know if you need to be the mm. others first mm-hmm. to get to it so but it definitely helps yeah yeah <laughs> it certainly wouldn't be a bad thing yeah and the, the better procrastinates is definitely more of like a once you've read all these things it just makes a lot more sense whereas just reading them some of them sound funny some of them are a bit odd but they make more sense having read all this other stuff as in once you've read all the taleb i think it's a great one to have but the better procrastinates just to sort of read a bit of it each day just to kind of remind you of all the concepts and think about different ways you can be applying it i think it's a great one for the toilet as we mentioned <laughs> absolutely yeah no absolutely good all right okay agreed good <laughs> let's uh, agreed on that let's uh, let's wrap this up thanks for listening thanks for the conversation sam and then uh, next episode we will discuss the next book in the series i think the final, final book in the skin yeah series, skin in the game yeah i wonder if he's writing exactly. a new book on something completely different because he talks about like having completely different sort of thoughts but all of his thoughts have all been very connected if he's going to like go somewhere completely different with his next stuff or if he's if you're like okay i've I've done my body of work it was great i'm just going to stop now and you mm-hmm. know to be fair i i really hope so what he stops really no that he keeps writing right. i don't know <laughs> I, like i i i wouldn't mind reading like five more of the books like uh like uh, yeah, yeah. anti-fragile really mm. it, i enjoyed it so much i mean i would love to, to have his view on, on other things yeah yeah becoming a big fan apparently definitely i'm, I'm certainly I feel like I like him a lot more now after this book than the other books. I felt he was a bit more annoying somehow in those ones. Yeah. I felt like he was poking yeah. more. He was doing more to prove other people wrong, perhaps, in some of the other books, whereas this one is a bit more of like how to be a useful human. And yeah, he seemed less annoying somehow. <laughs> somehow. Yeah. Maybe I just got used right. to it and I just like it. Yeah, his things just seem to make yeah. more sense. I'm just feeling I'm a lot more comfortable with it. You know? mm-hmm. Good. Who knows? Anyway, right. we were leaving, so bye. <laughs> Thank you for listening to our podcast. As you know, 
We are doing this to try and help you get smarter. Well, I have another project for podcast listeners just like you who want to be smart. Nico and I learned so much from reading the same things together and discussing them, and I wanted there to be a tool that made it easy for anyone to listen to the same podcasts and books together with their friends. So I'm building the app Syncify, which does just that. It connects you with your friends in the app. Listen to the same things at the same time. Or create shared playlists and work through them at your own pace. You can share comments and highlights of your favourite bits. And become smarter by seeing what your friends think around the same content that you enjoy. As a bonus, it also helps with your mental health and reduces isolation. Personally, I hate publishing my life on social media, which I find all rather antisocial. And I don't go out of my way to phone a friend for no reason other than the fact I feel lonely. I do love doing things with other people, and having my friends listen to the same things is, is really awesome. I mean, I used to speak to Nico like once a year before we started this book club together, and now we talk all the time because we're just doing something together. So do yourself a favour and sign up for the Syncify app at syncifyapp.com, and I really hope it helps. Thanks a lot for listening. If you enjoyed the show or learned anything new, be sure to share it with your friends. And I just can't tell you how great it is if you were to happen to leave a review on iTunes. These really do help quite a lot. If you have any questions or books that you'd like us to read, feel free to reach out to us through the website wiserpod.com or reach out to us on LinkedIn. And just keep loving and keep learning and ideally keep listening. Big love from Sam and Nico and the Wiser Than Yesterday podcast.